Welcome, and thank you for standing by. At this time, all parties are in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I will now introduce the conference host, the Honorable Jane Harmon, President, Director, and CEO of the Wilson Center. You may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning and welcome to those joining uh, from the United States, Russia, and around the world. Some of you are uh, in in uh, the 10 a.m. time zone. A number of you might be earlier, and uh, those in Europe and Russia are much later. Um, but uh, we appreciate uh, your effort to tune in for the Wilson Center's 141st Ground Truth Briefing. Uh, no one is missing uh, the, the elephant in the room, the coronavirus. Times are tough, and we all wish you and your families safety and health. The world is facing an unprecedented crisis, and did you know that the coronavirus particle is just 120 nanometers wide? That is small enough to fit nearly 600 uh, of those particles across the width of a human hair. So we are battling an enemy we cannot possibly see, but which is wreaking enormous havoc around the world. The long-term consequences are unknown. In the short term, there, is also, there are also consequences. While everyone focuses on the pandemic, and rightfully so, bad actors around the world are making the most of the moment. That's why the Wilson Center, under the leadership of our Kennan Institute, um, uh, which is all of both of which are ranked, the Kennan Institute I mean, is part of the Wilson Center, which is ranked number one, the number one think tank in the world uh, for the third year in a row, is, are working hard to keep you up to date on the overlooked but critical developments around the world. Today we're talking about the Russian Federation and President Vladimir Putin's moves to extend his 20-year reign by as many as 16 more years. Experts at our Kennan Institute have witnessed an extraordinary two months in Russia. What began as relatively subtle maneuvering to create new leadership roles for Putin once he left the presidency, such as heading a newly powerful state council, have quickly morphed into an overt rewriting of the Russian Constitution. The changes most notably effectively reset the number of terms that Putin has served. Though he was expected to stand down as president in 2024, he can now serve two more terms, lasting until 2036. The political reality is that Putin is not going anywhere. Uh, to introduce our speakers, to assess what this means, and what's next for Russia and the rest of us, uh, and to uh, explain uh, this in the context of a, a world under threat, um, is uh, Matt Rajansky, the vaunted and able director of our Kennan Institute. Matt will introduce our speakers, and we'll do this one at a time so that you can focus on who they are and what their experience is. So please join me in welcoming my colleague, uh, Matt Rajansky. Well, thank you very much, Jane, um, and I just want to thank the Wilson Center team and the Kennan Institute team. Uh, we'll be saying this a lot over the coming weeks. I hope it's not months, but it might be. This is unprecedented, um, but it wouldn't work as well as it has the fact that just a few days into this social distancing quasi-quarantine, we're able to continue with our work just as we have done uh, in the many years before. And it is testament to our, our third uh, year in a row as the number one think tank in regional studies that we can bring together such an incredibly experienced uh, crew to have this conversation this morning. Um, I'm reminded of 
a comment that our colleague, uh, Senior Vice President Rob Litvak, often makes. You know, when a crisis around the world happens, uh, usually uh, the leaders ask for regional expertise, what's happening in that place. And even though coronavirus is very much about epidemiology and medicine and health, um, it is still very much about the places and the countries and the systems and the governments and the societies uh, where this crisis is unfolding. So we're really fortunate to be able to bring you ground truth from those places, both people who are actually there as well as from there and with us here in the United States. Um, before I offer uh, a few introductions uh, in terms of thoughts and also of our speakers, uh, I want to note that uh, this may be our first uh, in the telework uh, ground truth briefing series, but uh, more are coming. Uh, and on Thursday of next week at 2.30 Eastern time, uh, same format, we're going to do uh, an event on Russia's military posture in the European Arctic uh, with Matthew Bolague of Chatham House uh, in London, Katarina Kertisova of the European Leadership Network uh, based in uh, Bratislava, and Mike Sprega of the Wilson Center. So another very valuable ground truth international perspective. Uh, as Jane mentioned, uh, Vladimir Putin has continued to surprise. He appears to be a master of this, even though the momentum of what he's doing all goes in one direction, which seems to be strengthening the power vertical that has been in place for 20 years. Uh, what exactly this means will be a, the subject for our discussion. Um, what we do know is that uh, with constitutional court and legislative approval and the approval of all of Russia's regions, uh, all of which the Kremlin seemed to be able to mobilize, with amazing speed despite the corona crisis that's unfolding in Russia as well. Um, uh, these changes to the Constitution are all but final. Uh, nominally, the President has called for uh, a public referendum process set to take place in April with quite a few legal restrictions around it. Whether and how that happens uh, amid this crisis is, I think, a very real question, uh, and whether it even matters, uh, given that we are essentially looking at the consolidation of power of a system uh, over two decades that in many respects uh, looks very much like the consolidation of power in the Soviet Union uh, or in Tsarist Russia. But these are all questions that I think our panel is eminently qualified to address. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is, uh, as Jane suggested, I'm going to introduce them uh, one at a time, let them speak for about five minutes each, introduce the next speaker and so on through our four wonderful speakers, uh, and then we'll open up the Q&A round. Um, Please know that at any time, including while our, our speakers are opening uh, or right now, you can press star 1 on your phone and your name will be added to a questioning queue. Uh, so uh, there's nothing rude about doing it. It's not like raising your hand in a live in-person event. Go ahead and press star 1 if you think you have a question uh, and we'll see your name pop up. So let me start with uh, our own Maxim Trudelubov, a very well-known voice uh, in the press. He's senior advisor at the Kennan Institute. Um, he edits the Russia File blog for us, a uh, very widely and well-read uh, publication, and is editor-at-large uh, at Vedemosti, uh, among many other qualifications as a journalist and political commentator. Maxime, let's start with you for the overview, please. Uh, good morning, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? Hi. Yes. Hello. Go ahead. We hear um, you. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So... Um, uh, the situation with the corona uh, virus epidemic uh, shows the states and the nations in, in a kind of a new light. We can see uh, what governments are doing, and governments are reacting in different ways. They're, they're also facing 
the situa- different situation or different stages of this. And um, uh, it all started in, in China big time. And um, what the Chinese authorities were facing, they were facing a real outbreak. What is happening in Europe, where I am now, I'm actually calling from Europe, uh, because I had to, I'm stuck here, <laughs> cannot move. And um, Europe, most of Europe, probably with the exception of Italy, uh, European governments are dealing with expectations. They are dealing with a statistical curve of a possible development. Uh, they're all looking at this curve and see that uh, without so the social distancing, without the quarantine measures, it might uh, go up very fast, and then uh, the medical facilities will be under much, much strain, which has already happened in Italy. That's why this extraordinary reaction everywhere. Basically, the, the entire sectors of the economy are frozen. Russia's reaction, as opposed to those, the previous two, the China's and uh, European, is very different. Uh, as already pointed, uh, Matthew pointed out, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, decided not to uh, postpone uh, a, a, a national vote that uh, has to happen in mid-April. And um, basically all other governments in the world uh, did postpone or canceled elections or similar ballots. In Russia, it's not the case. And um, in Russia, we don't even know the situation with the spread of uh, the disease because the statistics, I mean, I know very few people. Basically, I, I have to say I, I don't know anyone who fully trusts uh, the statistics that we have uh, from the authorities. The figures that we have, uh, upwards of 100 cases, are not uh, reliable. Uh, the Russian government does not have uh, a reliable testing system that is still under developing and uh, under development. And uh, basically, we have only one lab in Siberia, Novosibirsk, in the Sib- Siberian city of Novosibirsk. The one lab that uh, gives final a conclusion on whether. Uh, the person has, uh, uh, has, uh, is positive or negative on uh, the coronavirus uh, infection. So the situation with the virus in Russia is very different from both, from, let's say, both, both extremes. Uh, the Chinese reaction, which was very aggressive, and it received actually high marks from the World Health Organization. The, uh, the doctors went there, saw the results. But again, this is an authoritarian government that can lock down uh, hundreds of millions of people. And basically, uh, they also developed um, very modern techniques for essentially giving people um, uh, apps on their smartphones that that they use to move around. And if they are positive, they can go about cities. If they're negative, they have to stay home. None, none, none of the kind uh, is happening I- in Russia. Uh, basically, people are quarantining themselves if they think that the uh, that the uh, virus, uh, that the threat is real, or they just go about. Lots of cafes are still open. 
it's uh, mostly up to them. Um, lots, even not all schools are closed. A lot of schools are still open. So basically we see a priority. Moscow, the Kremlin, and uh, the current president clearly prioritize uh, this process of political uh, legitimation, the, the political um, uh, process that they themselves create, uh, that they think will make Putin's next term legitimate. They clearly prioritize this over uh, quarantine measures, which, yes, are a strain to the economy, but uh, clearly they don't want to uh, cause any strain to their uh, political uh, process. So I think this reaction so far is is rather unique. Um, kind of, I would I would actually compare that and maybe ask questions later about uh, the situation in the U.S. Because uh, uh, as we see from the news, uh, there's also a, a, a question of availability of tests in the U.S., the, at least the number of tests available, and uh, the, the kind of reaction of the White House is not, um, uh, does not seem to be, uh, you know, fully, uh, fully accepting uh, the scale of the threat, uh, as many Europeans have done, as, uh, let's say, the German uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel has done when she basically said in one press conference all the figures that she had from the doctors and uh, described the, uh, the inevitable scale of the pandemic and basically said that, you know, you guys, we have to now, you know, accept this and deal with it and uh, basically quarantine ourselves uh, and be socially responsible. None of that happens in Russia, and we see that the political, uh, being politically legitimate clearly is uh, uh, the priority uh, for the Kremlin. And uh, again, the character of that legitimacy is also interesting. If you look at China, you see that uh, the Chinese they started uh, acting very late, apparently, but then they switched on the full, uh, the full uh, measure of uh, of the authoritarian government's uh, resources, essentially concentrating resources very fast, um, and, and of course the 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 fear was that they were losing legitimacy from the bottom up, uh, from the grassroots. Uh, the Kremlin clearly does not think that way. They don't seem to be threatened or seem to fear that they will lose anything from the grassroots. They just want to keep uh, the political machine running, and they kind of believe that if they manipulate the figures enough, uh, they will win. That concludes my remarks. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Max. You've really raised a fascinating issue that I, I absolutely admit I didn't uh, anticipate, and, and that's this question of um, is is it not obvious that the greatest source of legitimacy for any government amidst a public health crisis is to deal efficiently with that crisis? And you've raised the question of whether the Kremlin actually sees it that way, but we'll have to table that question for the moment because we have three more 
wonderful opening speakers, and I promise you that we'll come back to it. Um, next, I want to go to Grigory Vipan, uh, who is Russian, uh, but is has just arrived. He had the good fortune or bad fortune, depending on how you look at it, at just as, uh, to have just arrived to begin his uh, fellowship as a Galena Star Voice of a Human Rights and Conflict Resolution Fellow uh, here at Kennan at the Wilson Center. Uh, until recently, he was head of litigation at the Institute of Law and Policy in Russia uh, and has directed strategic human rights litigation before Russia's constitutional court and the European Court of Human Rights. So, Grigory, please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Matt. I just want to make sure that everyone hears me well. Yes, absolutely. All right, great. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so just to follow up on what Max has said about the uh, current situation in Russia. So just uh, yesterday, Russian courts have basically suspended their work because of the coronavirus. Um, and uh, they, there are no more hearings until uh, April 10, except for the most urgent ones. Um, but uh, so in this context, it's even more interesting to note that uh, this Monday, uh, three days ago, the Constitutional Court passed its opinion on the uh, draft amendments to the Constitution, giving, uh, giving, uh, uh, or basically approving of all the amendments, uh, and it did so in just uh, in just two, in the span of two days, urgently with no hearing, uh, and it was given one week to do that. So we can see. On the one hand, Russian courts are not working, people not getting access to justice, but on the other hand, we see the Russian Constitutional Court uh, doing, in 48 hours, approving of all the complicated uh, provisions. Uh, it's a 68-page document, uh, the document with the amendments to the Russian Constitution, approving of all of that uh, instantly. So we clearly see the priorities for the Russian judiciary at this time, and we clearly see the Russian Constitutional Court participating in this legitimation game. Um, I want to touch briefly upon uh, the most important uh, amendments to the Russian Constitution that affect the judiciary, uh, and then just just a couple of words about the judiciary's own role in, in, in these amendments. So uh, as many of you certainly know, uh, there is a major amendment to the Russian Constitution that uh, changes the grounds and the procedure for the dismissal of many of Russia's judges. So uh, before, before these amendments uh, became effective, uh, they're in the process of becoming effective right now, before that, uh, judges of the Russian Constitutional Court and the Russian Supreme Court um, could only be removed from their office at the initiative of their peers. So it was a... Uh, it was an internal process. Uh, other branches of government uh, had no say in the removal of judges, except the uh, of the Russian Constitutional Court could be removed by the decision of the upper chamber of the Russian Parliament. But again, upon application by the plenary, by the by the uh, uh, plenary of the of the entire Constitutional Court. So now they have inserted this uh, new um, provision into the Russian Constitution that uh, judges of the Constitutional Court, the Supreme Court. Uh, as well as certain other higher courts, appeal courts and cassation appeal courts, um, may be removed from office upon request by the president addressed to the Council of uh, the Federation, the upper chamber of the Russian parliament. Um, and this is really extraordinary because it really uh, shows to the judges who their real boss is, and it's, and it's the president of the Russian Federation. Uh, and uh, many, many people may wonder, well, whether, whether there, there were 
independent judges in Russia, that whether there, there was any independence left. Well, we see from, from this amendment that, uh, you know, in fact, there might have been some independence. Well, otherwise, why would it have been necessary to, 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 to introduce this new uh, procedure into the Russian constitution? But, but now, uh, well, nothing's basically left of the separation of powers as, uh, as far as removal of judges is concerned. There are some other changes, too. Um, there's the decrease in the number of judges on the Constitutional Court from 19 to 11. There's no explanation from the authors of the amendments why they, why they needed to decrease the number of judges uh, or why the, this, this particular number, 11, has been chosen. We can talk about that more in the Q&A. And there have been changes in the powers of the Constitutional Court, including its power to assess uh, draft laws. Which many say, which many feel is, is in fact the weakening of the court, not its, its reinforcement. Uh, but what I've been really amazed by, by the role the constitutional court itself has played in this amendment process, because if we, if we read the opinion by the court that was, uh, uh, published uh, uh, earlier this week on Monday, it's difficult not to, met, not to really see that it's basically a suicide opinion by the judges themselves because it, it so much affects their own status and the fate of the court they're sitting on. Um, and nonetheless, nonetheless, they proceeded with handing down that opinion and they proceeded with approving all of the amendments. Uh, there were several options, several other options from them, not only declining to approve the amendment, but also certain procedural uh, getaways, uh, sorry, certain procedural escapes. So one way was that for them, for them to say that they did not have jurisdiction to um, uh, to rule on this uh, request by the president, and there were certain grounds for that, but they nonetheless proceeded uh, with approving all the amendments. And I think it shows that, you know, in, in the current Russia's uh, political system, um, in order to survive, all government actors, including judges, have to constantly compromise, and there's really no end to it. So once you start, once you start compromising. It's, it's really difficult for them to, you know, stop doing that. Uh, in 2014, they compromised on Crimea. They approved Russia's annexation of Crimea. They compromised on many, uh, many very um, uh, repressive laws and practices like the foreign agents law, for example. Now they were asked to approve amendments to the constitution that shrinks their own court to almost nothing. So, and of course, there's always the looming threats, the looming danger of their court being abolished at all, like the Supreme Commercial Court was uh, in 2014. So we clearly see uh, uh, there's this uh, fascinating picture of the Russian judiciary participating in its own self-destruction, and we see the Russian judiciary, especially the Constitutional Court, uh, getting uh, much more and more involved in, uh, in, in, in this political process at the expense of its own integrity. So basically, I think that's, that, that would be my introductory remarks, and I'm happy to answer any questions that the audience might have. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Grigori. That's an extremely bleak picture, I have to say, um, but it's a useful level of detail regarding the role of the constitutional courts and, uh, and judges in general in this change. Um, Marina Agaltsova will speak next. She's calling in to us from Moscow. Uh, she is a former Galina Starboyce of a fellow here. Uh, she's a Russian human rights lawyer and has been with the Human Rights Center Memorial, quite famous, for over three years. Uh, she works on cases involving enforced disappearances, 
unlawful killings and detention. So something tells me, Marina, that we're not about to get a, uh, a cheerful side of the coin. But please go ahead. Tell us tell us about the situation regarding the constitutional reform and also more broadly how this is fitting into the political climate in Russia. Thank you, Matt. When I was thinking about my presentation, I talked about the constitutional amendments as um, a good present. A present in a way that to have a good present, you need to have uh, the surprise, you need to have the present itself, you have uh, to have a wrapping paper, a stuffing paper, and a bow. Well, obviously, the constitutional amendments were introduced as um, basically like an open uh, buffet reception, which means that anybody uh, can pick something that is um, good for, their, for this person's own uh, taste. So in the amendments that were introduced by the president, obviously there was this um, human rights aspect. And uh, the human rights aspect that the president introduced was the social or pension rights. I will talk about this uh, a little bit later. But uh, if we talk in a more human, in a more broader, in a, in a broader human rights perspective, then we clearly see um, three, um, three aspects here. The first aspect is that um, before this amendment, we have um, the way how Russian laws were functioning was that we have a constitution in the center, as in the center of this universe, legal universe, like the sun. And then we have uh, different laws uh, that were circling around, and the comments, uh, comments um, they were all moving in a some, sometimes scarce, but at least they had the center, the sun, the constitution. And now uh, what we see is that this sun was amended, and it was amended in a very brutal way uh, without any regard to the procedural requirements on how you change the sun. And uh, in my opinion, this gave a very um, difficult um, effect uh, on lawyers, on judges as well, because um, before you had the center, you had something um, that was at least stable. Um, now this stability has been removed, and all we have is our evergreen president. So, in my opinion, this is the most important aspect of this amendment. Second uh, aspect that I wanted to talk um, was an um, amendment to the Article 79, um, which is that the decisions of international bodies that contravene to the Russian Constitution uh, may not be implemented. This is something that was um, bothering us, I mean, human rights lawyers, a lot. Um, Especially in 2016, when uh, when first this um, this idea was introduced in a form of a federal law, and since that time there were two um, instances when the Constitutional Court refused to implement the decision of the European Court of Human Rights. The first case was Anchigov and Glaskov versus Russia, which was about the right of prisoners to vote, and the second was about uh, Khodorkovsky case when the Constitutional Court said that implementing a decision of the, Court of, of the European Court of Human Rights about um, violation by Russia of the right to property of, um, in terms of UCAS would be against uh, Russian constitutional order. So um, this amendment uh, 
to the Article 79 is not something that um, is new. The Act we already have this in place. And therefore, in my opinion, this amendment um, is like a stuffing paper because it adds only both uh, into the amendment and doesn't add, in my opinion, anything new to the system. So um, now I move to the third aspect, which is um, some interesting amendments to the Article uh, 67. Uh, this article uh, talks about the territory of Russia, Russian Federation, about the lakes, about the seas, and all that. But now we have this um, salad uh, in this article where um, anybody can find whatever they want. Uh, so what I found was that um, the Russian Federation honors the memory of the defendants um, of the fatherland and protects historical truth. Now, according to this amendment, uh, it is prohibited to disparage the significance of the achievements of the Russian people while defending the fatherland. So, uh, in my opinion, again, it's, um, it may be considered as a wrapping paper or a bow to some of the groups in the Russian uh, society. And um, what I see, it means that um, since this article talks about uh, historical truth, that Russia protects historical truth, in my opinion, that means a further encroachment on the freedom of speech. And um, um, the freedom of speech situation currently in Russia is a um, very um, hot topic, and the freedom of speech is limited in many aspects. So I expect a further limitation on freedom of speech. And finally, uh, the, the fourth aspect, um, the economic and social rights, which uh, were a wrapping paper for this amendment. And uh, basically now, um, Mr. Putin put in the Constitution uh, an amendment saying that the state guarantees that the minimum uh, wage shall not be lower than the poverty line. And the poverty line uh, in Russia is uh, around uh, 230 uh, US dollars per month. Clearly, we see that um, this, um, this provision, this amendment, uh, targets a poor population for whom this date is uh, important and is uh, seducing. Um, but uh, to add to this, what I find um, interesting is that in our federal law, we already have the same provision, namely in our labor law. So basically, this provision is not necessary for the Constitution. I don't understand why it has to be in the Constitution. But I guess, uh, again, uh, in, as I said, it's an open buffet reception, and uh, many debates for different uh, groups were put into this amendment. And therefore, this amendment clearly targets the poor people who the government believes uh, will vote for the amendments. And that concludes my opening speech. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Marina. Um, I want to go quickly now to uh, Will Pomerantz uh, and then uh, open it up for questions as soon as we can after that and remind everyone uh, who may have a question, you can go ahead now at any time, press star one on your phone, and that will put you on the list to ask a question. We'll see your name, and then you'll hear me call on you uh, when it's your turn. So uh, Will Pomerantz, of course, needs no introduction around here. Uh, the Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute, an expert on all the complexities of uh, political, economic, and in particular uh, legal developments in Russia, and has in fact uh, just completed a magnum opus book on law in Russia. And so, Will, 
uh, you're the perfect speaker to back clean up on our opening. Right. Um, thanks very much, Matt. And uh, some of my points have already been mentioned, so I will refer to our other speakers. Um, but I want to follow up on a point that Marina made, and that is that a lot of what has been in these amendments don't really represent uh, fundamental changes. What they do is they take existing legislation that have been put into law and have raised them to constitutional principles. Um, I also don't think that we need to wax uh, idealistic about the current Constitution. Uh, it has never been fully implemented. It, may, it remains largely an aspirational document and often not a description of reality. And finally, the Constitution itself has possessed strong status tendencies, which Boris Yeltsin relied on and which Putin has expanded. So on a certain level, nothing has changed, and yet, as, I've, as the other speakers have mentioned, uh, everything has changed. Um, because I think we have transitioned from the Yeltsin Constitution to the Putin Constitution, not only because of the expanded length of Putin's reign, but because it, the amendments have transformed Chapter 1 of the Russian Constitution on the fundamentals of the constitutional system. And as Marina and Grigori hinted, this has been done in a very non-procedural way. Uh, the Constitution has a way to uh, specifically amend Chapter 1, most notably by calling a constitutional assembly. This has not been done. This, the uh, Chapter 1 has been reformed via re amendments to other sections of the Constitution, yet it has a significant impact on the fundamentals of the constitutional system. Um, I'll briefly just mention some of these. Uh, Article 2 of the original Constitution talked about individuals and their rights and freedoms as the supreme value. Uh, Marina hinted to Article 67 in the uh, amendments, but I think these amendments have raised the notion of the preservation of the Russian state and the historic unity of the Russian state as the first and foremost fundamental value. Uh, in this regard, is not much different from the Soviet and, indeed, czarist legal systems. Uh, the original 1993 Constitution did not confer a special role on the Russian people. Instead, emphasizing the multinational people uh, should be the bearers of, the Ru of Russian sovereignty. Uh, we now have this very awkward provision in Article 68, which talks about the Russian language as the language of the state-forming people, thereby elevating the place of Russians in the Russian Federation. I think this breaks many taboos uh, that have been uh, observed throughout Russian and Soviet history and is bound to upset the national minorities that, one must remember, make up 20% of the population. Maria hinted to the, the, the emphasis on social rights in these amendments. Indeed, they really have shifted the balance between social rights and political rights. It's not as if the original 1993 Constitution did not mention social rights, but they have been significantly enhanced uh, through minimum wage, pension guarantees, etc., with no really accompanying strengthening of the, uh, of the civil rights and individual rights in the Constitution. Uh, a few more examples of how the constitutional fundamentals of the constitution, constitutional system have been changed. Uh, Article 12 in the 1993 Constitution said that local government should be independent. Uh, we now have in these amendments something called the Unified System of Public Power uh, to be defined at a later date, but it's quite clear that the target is local self-government. Uh, again, the original Constitution spoke of the fact that there could be no official ideology, 
but I think that with these amendments, Putin's conservative patriotism has now been incorporated into the Constitution, as Maria emphasized about the, uh, that you can't criticize the achievements of the Russian people in defense of the fatherland, and moreover, that a traditional marriage consists of a man and a woman. Uh, there are other examples of, well, uh, I think the notion of Russia as a secular state has been undermined by the reference to God. Uh, Marina talked about the questioning about the uh, supremacy of international law under Article 15.4. Uh, and finally, I'll just conclude that this these amendments really transformed the division of powers in Russia. Again, these have been subject to different interpretations, um, but in terms of what would be a formal division of powers, these amendments significantly undermine them. They have, as Grigori has emphasized, weakened the judiciary and indeed politicized it. Uh, we haven't talked about democracy, one of my favorite topics, but in terms of constitutional recognition, uh, its supervisory powers and its, indeed its supervision over the implementation of the Constitution has now been enshrined in the Constitution. And finally, as others have mentioned, uh, we have a very enhanced presidency uh, in this Constitution. Uh, I found the most, one of the most interesting changes that have kind of gone under the, uh, the radar screen is that the president now doesn't just preside over meetings of the government, but the government is now under the general leadership of the president, thereby really diminishing the distinction that was tried to, that was tried to be made in the original constitution between the president and the executive branch. Uh, the president now still appoints the power ministers. Uh, as Gory said, he can now in, in, introduce the firing of constitutional judges and so forth. So to conclude, I think something has changed uh, within the Russian constitution. Uh, the state and the power vertical has been enhanced. Russia's theoretical civil liberties has taken another hit, and its intermediary institutions have been diminished. Whether these reforms achieve their intended goal, namely increased stability and unity, uh, will be immediately tested, as Max has emphasized, in the aftermath of the coronavirus and other issues accompanying that, uh, that health emergency. So with that, I'll conclude my opening remarks. All right. Thanks very much, Will and, and everyone. Um, we have loads of questions, but uh, please go ahead and press star one uh, to be added to the queue. I promise we'll get to as many as we can, and I want to go right to Jane Harmon to start us out. Uh, thank you, Matt. I think after hearing Will's uh, uh, closing uh, presentation, you can understand all of, all of you listening on the call, and I gather there are 160 of you, which is a very high number for us. Uh, you can understand why we are voted by our peers number one in regional expertise in the world for the third time. Uh, I learned a lot on this call, and I'm sure you did too. Uh, an observation and a question. My observation is that, in, in case you missed it, it's on page 20 of our newspapers. While this has been going on, Israel uh, has suspended its uh, court system. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu has been indicted for various corrupt uh, forms of corruption, and his the legal proceedings were supposed to start this week. They have been suspended because the court system has been suspended because of the coronavirus. Uh, and my, my, my question is, is, is what we're seeing in Russia uh, an aberration or is it possibly a trend in the world for, for leaders, um, Putin may be a more extreme example, but for leaders to consolidate power and to take advantage of the fact that attention is directed elsewhere. And if it is a trend in the world, 
Uh, I know you're all uh, Russia experts, but if it is a trend in the world, shouldn't we try, we, the Wilson Center and those who are commenting on this, uh, to uh, call attention uh, to the dangers in this trend, try harder to call attention to the dangers in this trend? Uh, thank you, Jane. I'd like to go to Max Chudalubov on that question because I think you really touched on it in your opening. And in particular, I find the comparative angle, uh, you know, bringing in Israel, Max, you had already mentioned China, uh, you know, kind of compare how this um, crisis is turning into an opportunity perhaps for authoritarianism. Well, yeah, uh, thank you, Jane, for the question. Actually, this is a very, very good question. I've been thinking about it myself uh, for quite a while. Um, the nature of the threat clearly is different. And, I mean, just go back um, a couple months ago, and uh, we'll see the kind of threats we've been thinking about and the kind of threats that were on, um, on people's minds in the West and in Russia. They were different. Uh, in Russia, we were very uh, often preoccupied with uh, the state's uh, invasiveness with the authoritarian regimes. In Europe, people would think about, uh, you know, the, their personal data, the private space, uh, the big high-tech companies that uh, threaten, as they think, you know, their, their privacy. But now we see that the biological threat the threat that is biological in nature has almost completely uh, supplanted everything else. And in a situation like this, people start panicking. Uh, and my, my impression, well, in Europe especially, uh, people are not used to that. Uh, they don't fear for their lives, actually. You know, when you live your very comfortable life in a a small European town on a big European town, you don't really face the kind of uh, fear that um, people now have of them uh, on their minds. We in Russia are actually, to be honest, are quite used to that because we have more threats in our daily lives uh, to a certain degree. Obviously, not you know, it's 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 not that big, but you can you can expect certain things happening too. So basically. It is, um, it is a trend, and uh, the right-wing movements and right-wing political parties are gaining support right now. And basically, what they and, and the governments that are in power now, because they understand what is expected of them, uh, they are acting in unprecedented ways. And as I said before, we are dealing. The European governments are dealing mainly with a curve with an expectation. It's like in a market. You basically price in certain things. In most European countries, the number of cases is not uh, large. If we, Italy is, is a huge exception, but basically in many European countries, um, the governments are dealing with some, something that might happen if they won't contain the danger now. And um, and uh, they have uh, full support from uh, from the grassroots. So I think, on the one hand, yes, there is there is a danger for us, and we have to think about it and investigate this further. That the right wing thinking, uh, the closure of all borders, and um, 
full uh, closure of entrance to any migration might gain upper hand. But on the other hand, we see that the reaction from the governments like, let's say, Germany's government uh, has been to call for national uh, unity, for national support from the grassroots so that people energize themselves and help each other in this situation and contain it as much as they can and as fast as they can so that then they uh, that the businesses could reopen etc so I wouldn't say it's like a foregone conclusion by, uh, by now that um, we are facing a new um, huge authoritarian wave if I mean a lot depends actually to me I think a lot depends on on the European and um, American reaction to, to the virus. If in the process of this enormous uh, and, and unprecedented, um, uh, you know, events, if a lot of the voters retain the understanding, keep, sort of keep the feeling of what their governments and the political parties they support were originally for, and, and they keep remembering that 30 years ago we were all cheering up for borders being opened uh, keep remembering that what what they enjoyed for those 30 peaceful uh, years of prosperity um, I think it's not yet happened it, it, it's it's a process uh, I, I'm sort okay. of very cautiously well cautiously almost optimistic uh, uh, well, let's see what happens. Okay. Thanks, Max. I want to get to another question right away. Um, uh, Diana Spencer, please, from the Wilson Cabinet. Diana, are you there? Nope. Do we, do we have Diana on the phone? Okay. Uh, looks like we lost her. I want to go then oh, to... Uh, uh, I'm on. Can, can you hear me? Diana, please go ahead. You're oh, first. okay, great. Um, I was going to say very informative information. Uh, it sounds really like Russia is becoming more of a police state. And my question is, with Russia lowering the oil prices, uh, which will necessitate higher taxes, how will this bode with for Russians? Will they rebel? Great. Well, yeah. This is <laughs> Well, let's, let's uh, so, so for context, you know, it's, uh, thank you, Diana, for the question. And for context, it, it's interesting that we managed to have uh, four-plus speakers on this topic um, who have not mentioned the background crisis, which Russia is either fully in or will be within, uh, some estimates are, are three months to six months, uh, which is an oil price that cannot possibly sustain the Russian state budget. Um, so if I can, actually, uh, I'd like to go to Grigori. Uh, you know, you talked about how uh, essentially uh, the president now has all the power. Uh, does that not also mean the president has all the responsibility? And as Will mentioned, the president uh, is now in charge of the government. So uh, he can't really scapegoat for any of these problems, including the, the low oil price and potentially the collapse of the state budget and the ability to pay all these social payments. Uh, is 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 Putin in a sense, um, you know, writing his own 
uh, demise here with these changes? Uh, yeah, well, I think th- that is true to, to a great extent. Uh, but I don't think that the Constitution really decides that. I mean, the, 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 the overall political system has brought us to where we are in Russia at this time with uh, so much power concentrated in the Kremlin. I think uh, we should look at the recent amendments to the Russian Constitution as a, as a kind of a, actually a short hole or a, or a it, yeah, basically a short hole uh, solution, a short-term solution. So uh, number one task would be to uh, preserve, keep Putin as president for the next 16 years so that's why they made all those provisions about him being able to be reelected once again. Um, well, then certain restrictions on other branches of government to keep them in check, like I said, to show who the boss is. But then otherwise, it's mostly a propaganda exercise, because uh, if we look at so many of the amendments, we see they're mostly symbolic in nature. Uh, the, the ones that Will has mentioned uh, and Marina has mentioned, uh, uh, amendments on the role, the role of, of religion, God, uh, the role of the Russian people as, as the, as the, as the uh, historically the, the, the basic people in, in Russia, uh, restrictions for certain officials, uh, restrictions on taking office, they cannot have any banks, any, any property abroad. Um, uh, things like uh, emphasizing continuity with the USSR, uh, emphasizing patriotism, things like social solidarity, uh, duties of citizens, and then, of course, all the social rights. So I think that, to, to, to a great extent, uh, this is an exercise in uh, uh, really uh, symbolic pronouncements that uh, could uh, that would convince the majority of peoples that, you know, uh, country is moving the, in the direction they would like it to see. So, you know, if the, if, if the government says now there would be minimum wage of a certain amount, then there would be minimum wage of a certain amount. That does not necessarily mean that it, it, it would be, in fact, in, in six months or in one year or in two years. But for now, in the short term, it kind of the government is sending out that message to keep people more confident, irrespective of the actual uh, perspectives, and right. also on, on this on this procedural level, the nationwide vote that they are planning for April 22nd is also a way, kind of a Russian, it's kind of an authoritarian way to show to the people that there's some political participation going on. Look, you have a voice, and people start thinking, well, maybe we we might have a voice, whereas in fact they're only rubber stamping the decision that has already been taken. Right. Let me take this opportunity. Go ahead. I do want to, and uh, Matt, this is Will. I do want to kind of just expand on Gregory's answer for one sec, one one minute. Yes. And that is, I think that Putin will pursue the strategy that he pursued in 2014, 2015, in the aftermath of the introduction of sanctions. So therefore, I don't think he's going to spend his hard currency reserves, which are more than 500 billion dollars, uh, on stabilizing the ruble. I think that was one of the important aspects of the 2014-2015 crisis. He did not stabilize the ruble, and therefore everyone's standard of living uh, was reduced significantly. So I think he's going to be judicious as to how he spends this $500 billion, uh, especially because of the, the collapse of the uh, oil prices. And uh, I 
it will be very interesting to see if the social contract that he proposed in 2014-2015, i.e. no real bailouts, is what he pursues today. Right. I just really quickly on this on this economy and uh, oil prices point, I want to uh, go to Marina, not so much in your capacity as a, a lawyer and constitutional expert, but because you're on the ground in Moscow. I mean, we've seen a, a one-third collapse in the ruble. The oil price is at a historic low. Uh, and you probably, uh, all the science tells us that even if Russians are slow to react, they will have to go into full quarantine or social distancing mode soon, which means all of the consumer businesses, restaurants and uh, stores and things are going to have to close. Um, do you, are you already seeing Russians suffering economically in, in a way now more than they were a year ago, or is it basically kind of the same still for now? Thank you, much for the question. Um, well, I, in my opinion, the way how I see things, um, the quarantine now is only has been uh, in place only for three days, so we don't uh, really experience uh, the negative consequences of the quarantine yet. Um, but going uh, to the question asked, um, uh, will Russians rebel? I don't think that uh, the Russians will rebel, and the reason I think they will not rebel is that um, I love talking to people on the streets. Putin referred to them as ordinary people. So I love talking to ordinary people and see uh, which way they are, um, uh, they are going. So uh, the ordinary people on the streets uh, perceive the situation and then they compare the situation with uh, the baseline. And the baseline is what happened in the 90s, which is the famine, um, salary not paid for one year, uh, so a complete poverty. So unless uh, the standard of living um, equals to this baseline, Russians will not rebel. And I don't think that um, even though the, the oil prices are low and uh, we experience oil crisis, constitutional crisis, quarantine uh, crisis, uh, crisis, I don't think that we will go to this level. And therefore, in, in my opinion, the Russians will not uh, rebel in any observable future. Okay. All right, uh, we have plenty more questions. Let me go, uh, let's try to do this as quickly as we can in just a few minutes remaining. Uh, Daniela Galparovic from uh, Voice of America, please. Hello, uh, I hope you hear me. Thank you yes. everyone for this brilliant explanation of last institutional amendments. Uh, my, uh, I have two questions to uh, whoever wants to answer. First, what impact from these constitutional amendments and extending of Putin's power uh, is for Russian foreign policy? What do you expect it will go where? Um, and uh, second question, um, you know, what I see now in social media when, when people discuss these amendments, they say, so why did they do it, including constitutional court judges? It's not the Stalin's time, so they don't have this level of threats under which they, they could make those decisions. So what do you think? What is really the level of threats to Russian uh, uh, political decision-makers like the constitutional judges if they not obey Putin's uh, will? And, uh, or it's just a result of negative selection within 20 last years that these guys uh, don't have to be told what to do. Thank you. Okay, those are actually fantastic questions, Daniel. I, I, uh, I will 
see if we can get to both of them. Um, let's uh, actually take the second one first, if we can. Um, I'm curious, uh, Grigori, do you have a sense about what the uh, the threat? I mean, you talked about the the judges basically issuing a suicide opinion. Um, you know. Try to make it more concrete. You know, what exactly is in their minds? What exactly are they afraid of? If if they couldn't be fired by the president before, and now they've made it so that they can be fired by the president. Walk us through that thought process. Right. So uh, it's difficult to get into the minds of uh, constitutional court judges, but uh, if we look at who they are, actually we'll see that out of 15 judges that uh, there are right now on on the court, 11 of them are Putin's appointees. So the, the, select, the, the selection process uh, for Russian constitutional court judges works in a way that the president proposes and then the upper chamber of the Russian parliament approves. And of the remaining four out of 15, one uh, is uh, Valery Zorkin, who is the chair of the constitutional court, and he has just been reappointed as chair of the Russian constitutional court. And uh, amendments that were introduced several years ago made the appointment of the chair of the court not an internal matter for, for the court itself. So, but again, yeah, the matter for the president and the Federation Council. So many, many of most, in fact, most of the judges on the court are, are, are Putin's appointees. And I think many of them, some of them at least, uh, maybe even support the, the amendments. And they certainly think that the amendments themselves won't really hit at them. They think they, they're really secure as long as they're loyal. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, and then for the rest, oh, certainly I think there are judges who, who don't like what's going on. But for them, I think they're, they're, they're participating in this kind of an appeasement policy. So they think, well, if we let the Kremlin do this, then they will, uh, will, 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 will safeguard the space that's left for us to do good things and to protect certain people and to decide certain cases the right way. The, the, the problem with that line of policy is, is like I said at the beginning, you never know how, how far your space, this, this, this safe space will shrink. And of course, judges uh, like uh, good salaries that they have, they love that they, 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 they ride the, the, uh, the cars that the government provides them and, they, and everything else. Uh, judges of the Constitutional Court are fully government supported from cars to housing. So, uh, it, so yeah, let me, yeah. They, they, they've got no incentives. Yeah. No, that's very helpful, Grigori. I want to ask Marina, if, if you think about uh, the broader elite under the Putin system, both those who are in official state power and those who simply enjoy privilege in the system, um, is, is there actually more to lose by uh, uncertainty about what comes after Putin or whether Putin stays than there is by extending Putin's power and vertical indefinitely. The longer that it's there, the more secure it is, the better it is for the entire elite. Is that a fair statement in terms of their psychology? Thank you, Matt. Actually, uh, I've been thinking about that, looking at the um, different interviews um, of our members of the parliament. I was looking at them uh, and I was watching these interviews and I was actually thinking about that that they are uh, standing by the status quo, existing status quo, and um, whether they are not uh, having any further ambition uh, to become something something more and maybe to develop 
more. So um, I, to me, I concluded that maybe there are some, uh, some people who want more and who are not happy with the status quo. But unfortunately, um, these people are clearly in minority, and the majority are the people who are afraid to lose uh, what they already have. And um, we experience this kind of internal crisis where a person, um, Vladimir Lukin, who used to be, a, who, who is actually still a liberal, um, a liberal, and uh, he was among uh, the people who founded Memorial. Um, he was a, a Russian ombudsman for a very long time, and he voted for the amendments. Um, so then there was this huge discussion about why he voted for the amendments. Well, it turns out that uh, he was appointed by the government of one Russian state, and that state votes, uh, voted, uh, instructed him to vote in this certain way. And uh, instead of pretending to be sick or taking a leave or whatever, he voted for the amendments. So, because I believe he was afraid to lose what he already has, has uh, and uh, also Grigori mentioned that he, he understands that now while being in power, he can help people who are in need, like, you know, memorial human rights, human rights defenders and other people at okay. risk. Um, so he tries to stay in power, and therefore he voted for the, for the yes. amendments. Okay, that's actually a very uh, interesting example, Marina Vladimir Lukin, who is not only the human rights ombudsman and a co-founder of Memorial and a member of the parliament and the liberal, so-called liberal fraction, uh, but also, if I'm not mistaken, a former ambassador to the United States, the lead representative for Russia in the uh, Ukraine negotiations uh, in, in February 2014. So quite an important figure as well in foreign policy. Uh, Max, can you address the other part of Danila's question about whether there will be any impact on Russia's foreign policy from these constitutional changes, or for that matter, from anything else going on right now, like Corona? Max, are you with us? I, 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 I can jump in here, Matt. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Will. Okay, so um, just on the foreign policy question, in terms of the constitutional amendments, I found it very interesting that um, one amendment, uh, I think it's Article 69 uh, of, of, to the Constitution, says that Russia can provide assist, assistance and support to its fellow nationals abroad. And then 79, uh, the Amendment 79 said that Russia would not permit any internal interference in domestic affairs. So I think that really is gets to the nub of Russia policy, uh, at least in terms of Russia and its near abroad, uh, that it will continue to support uh, what it perceives as nationals, uh, but will not tolerate any sort of uh, interference in domestic affairs. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if I can, uh, Max, are you, are you back with us? No, I guess we've lost Max. So, but if I can suggest, I mean, I think the, the core message, uh, the core lesson uh, from the constitutional reforms so far uh, is that stability uh, in a strategic sense is prized uh, over uh, uncertainty and that if we see surprise, it will be on the tactical level. It seems to me that that works as a metaphor on Russian foreign policy as well. In other words, we're not going to see a strategic realignment of Russian foreign policy the gravitation towards China 
is unlikely to change because it appears to be in the interest of the Kremlin to move in that direction, nor is the hostility and the tension between uh, Russia and uh, the greater West, that is the United States and, and Europe, nor is that likely to transform. But there are likely to be continued moments of tactical surprise. The more the Kremlin is able to keep uh, international actors uh, reacting uh, rather than setting the agenda, uh, the more that empowers the Kremlin to set its own agenda. Uh, and that's going to be especially true, of course, in its neighborhood, uh, where uh, its, its biggest interests are at stake, that is the, the nearest uh, foreign countries in the former Soviet region. Um, I want to try, I know we've gone over by a few minutes, we'll go over just, just maximum another five minutes if we can. So I want to bring in one more question. Jeffrey Ellis, are you still on the line from the State Department? I am, yes. Please, go ahead. Um, so I, I guess my, my question is actually very similar to Jane Harmon's question at the beginning. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at the former Soviet Union uh, space. And, and I'm wondering if I'm sitting in Central Asia in particular, in Turkmenistan or, or Tajikistan, where um, aging authoritarians um, still remain in power. What, what lessons um, they and perhaps others in the former Soviet Union space might be taking uh, from these changes underway in Russia? That is a fantastic question, Jeff. And if I can take the opportunity to add on not only the, the lessons for uh, for other former Soviet leaders from what Putin has done, but maybe the lessons for Putin from what other former Soviet leaders have done. Uh, much has been made of Nazarbayev's uh, supposed transition within the last years, whether that had any influence on the way that Putin has handled this. Um, who wants to jump in on that? Well, I'll, I'll just say it's, it's a shame that Max is, is, is no longer connected unless he's jumped back in. Uh, because he's talked about the problems of transitions, not only in Russia, but in the entire post-Soviet space. And he's emphasized the question, not only of power, but of great wealth, that these are the two, two, two twin issues that is, uh, is, is uh, focusing the transfer of power in the post-Soviet space. And so clearly what we thought of a month ago is that Putin was – moving towards a Nazarbayev-type solution, uh, and there was lots of speculation about the state council and how he would head it and how he would interact, indeed, if he was the head of it with the president and the other political institutions and so forth. Um, that speculation has, has now died away, and that it's clear that in terms of Russia's attitude towards succession, uh, the need to maintain state power and to remain a, a head of a formal state institution is the way that they've decided to go. And so we will see, if we, if we look at the kind of the twin examples of Russia and uh, Kazakhstan, whether it is necessary to actually maintain state power and, head of, and be head of state in order to consolidate your political power and to facilitate this great transition of wealth, or whether it can be done by an informal institution uh, but headed by a strong leader, ex-leader as well. Thanks, Will. Any uh, final thoughts in 30 seconds from uh, Marina uh, or Grigori or Max, if you come back on? Well, I just wanted to add uh, about the lessons. So what we clearly uh, saw from uh, Belarusian um, experience, when um, 
when the President of Belarus also proposed uh, amendments amendment to the Constitution allowing him to stay in power forever, there was the Constitutional Court, the Belarusian Constitutional Court, that said uh, no to this. However, then this court had been uh, completely, um, well, the judges were fired, they were impeached, uh, and I do believe that uh, the Russian judges, when they, they were faced with uh, the Putin's amendments, they also saw this lesson and they considered this experience as well. Mm-hmm. Grigori, any final thoughts? Uh, well, I have one point that's not necessarily related to the one previously just discussed, uh, but uh, I have this feeling that, uh, so I want to comment on this, on this stability issue that was mentioned. So it looks like, you know, uh, everything looks stable, Putin's in power, everyone's in check, but there's one problem. They've reopened, they've opened the Pandora box. For many years, they kept saying they won't touch the Constitution, they won't alter anything in the Constitution to, in a fundamental way. And now, they keep saying, they still keep saying that the Constitution is the same, there's no need for the new one, but they've re- rewritten so many things in there, and they've introduced so many uh, ad hoc provisions, like a sp- special provision for Putin to stay in power, that one has the feeling that instead of the stability, we now have a fully unpredictable legal system, and we have potentially, potential unpredictabilities in the political system. So I'm not really sure that uh, this game of rewriting the Constitution won't play back at a certain time and won't hit back at those who are now in the business of doing that. You know, one of the temptations for those of us who follow uh, fundamentally unpredictable human affairs is to extend out the current curve indefinitely. It's always the easiest thing to do to say, well, we'll see more of what we've seen. And probably some of that is true. Uh, But in the case of Russia, uh, as in many cases, I think the lessons of history are our friends. uh, And that is that even in the most seemingly stable periods of Russian history, seemingly the longest reigns of the most powerful consolidated Uh, sovereign regimes, whether under the Tsars or under the Soviets, uh, the very roots of the biggest changes were being planted at those times. So we need to pay attention to all of the factors, everything that's going on, uh, even when it seems like there's only one big story, there are always more stories, and we're going to continue bringing them to you uh, through Ground Truth briefings, through our Russiafile blog, Uh, and other content that we'll bring you uh, on the web and in virtual formats as long as we're in social distancing mode. I apologize to those questions that we didn't get to. We've gone uh, far enough over time. Uh, I'm afraid I have to cut it off here, but I invite everybody to join us uh, next Thursday, March 26th at 2.30 p.m. Uh, Call details will be on the Wilson Center website for Russia's military posture in the European Arctic. Uh, And I want to thank our speakers, uh, Max, uh, Marina, Grigori and Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to my wonderful colleagues at the Wilson Center for making this possible. And everybody, stay healthy out there. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. This concludes your conference, and you may disconnect. Once again, your conference has ended, and you may disconnect. Thank you for joining.